0: section 11 of history of the catholic church from the renaissance to the french revolution by rev james mccaffrey this librivox recording is in the public domain norway which was united with denmark at this period was forced into submission to the new creed by the violence of the danish kings aided as they were by the greedy nobles anxious to share in the plunder of the church similarly iceland which was subject to denmark was separated from Rome, though at first the people offered the strongest resistance to the reformers. The execution, however, of their bishop John Ariston, the example of Denmark and Norway, and the want of capable religious leaders produced their effects and In the end, Iceland was induced to accept the new religion fifteen fifty one for a considerable time. Catholicism retained its hold on a large percentage of the people both in Norway and Iceland. But the severe measures taken by the government to ensure the complete extirpation of the Catholic hierarchy and priesthood led almost of necessity to the triumph of Lutheranism. By the Union of Kalmar, 1397, Sweden, Norway, and Denmark reunited under the rule of the King of Denmark. The union did not, however, bring about peace. The people of Sweden disliked the rule of a foreigner, and more than once they rose in rebellion against Denmark. In the absence of a strong central authority the clergy and nobles became the dominant factors in the state especially as they took the lead in the national agitations against king eric and his successors as in most other countries at the time the church is exceedingly wealthy the bishoprics and abbacies being endowed very generously but unfortunately as elsewhere the progress of religion was not in proportion to the worldly possessions of its ministers Endowment had destroyed the liberty of election, so essential for good administration, with the result that the bishops and other ecclesiastical dignitaries were selected without much regard for their qualifications as spiritual guides. Yet it must be said that in general the administrators of the ecclesiastical property were not hard taskmasters when compared with their late contemporaries, nor was there anything like a strong popular feeling against the church. Still, the immense wealth of the religious institutions, the prevalence of abuses, and the failure of the clergy to instruct the people in the real doctrines of their faith, were a constant source of menace to the church in Sweden, and left it open to a crushing attack by a leader who knew how to win the masses to his side by proclaiming himself the champion of national independence and of religious reform. In 1515, Steen Sturr, the administrator of Sweden, supported by the bishop of Linköping, as leader of the popular party, made a gallant attempt to rally his countrymen to shake off the Danish yoke. Unfortunately for the success of his undertaking, he soon found a dangerous opponent in the person of Gustav Truel, Archbishop of Uppsala, the nominee and supporter of the King of Denmark. The Archbishop threw the whole weight of his influence into the scales of Denmark, and partly owing to his opposition, partly owing to the one of sufficient preparation, the national uprising was crushed early in 1520 christian the second was crowned king of sweden by the archbishop of Uppsala. he signified his elevation to the throne by a general massacre of his opponents which lasted for two days and during which many of the best blood of sweden were put to death november 1520 the archbishop was rewarded for his services to denmark by receiving an appointment as regent or administrator of sweden he and his party made loud boasts of their political victory, but had they been gifted with a little prudence and zeal, they would have found good reason to regret a triumph that had been secured by committing the Church to the support of a Danish tyrant against the wishes of the majority, who favoured national independence. Religion and patriotism were brought into serious conflict, and, given only a capable leader, who would know how to conduct his campaign with skill, it was not difficult to foresee the results of such a conflict." As it happened, such a leader was at hand in the person of Gustav Eriksson, better known as Gustavus Vasa. His father had been put to death in the massacre of Stockholm, and he himself, when a youth, had been given as a hostage to the King of Denmark. He made his escape and fled to Lübeck, where he was kindly received, and remained until an opportunity arose for his return to Sweden. He placed himself immediately at the head of the party, willing to fight against Denmark, called upon his countrymen to rally to his standard and in a short time succeeded in driving the danish forces from sweden he was proclaimed administrator of his country in 1521 and two years later a national diet assembled at strängnäs offered him the crown such an offer was in exact accordance with his own wishes but he had no intention of becoming king of sweden merely to remain a tool in the hands of the spiritual and lay lords as the king of denmark had remained Determined in his own mind to make himself absolute ruler of Sweden by crushing the bishops and barons, he recognized that Luther's teaching, with which he was familiar owing to his stay at Lübeck, held out good hopes for the success of such a project. The warm attachment of the bishop of Uppsala for the Danish faction had weakened the devotion of the people to the church, and had prepared the way for the change which Gustavus contemplated. Some of the Swedish ecclesiastics, notably the brothers olaf and Lawrence petersen both students of wittenberg the former a well-known preacher at stockholm the latter a professor at upsala were strongly lutheran in their tendencies and were ready to assist the king though in his letters to rome and in his public announcements gustavus professed himself to be a sincere son of the church anxious only to prevent at all costs the spread of lutheranism in his dominions he was taking steps secretly to encourage his lutheran supporters and to rid himself of the bishops and members of the religious orders from whom he feared serious opposition as was done elsewhere he arranged for public disputation at which olaf Peterson undertook to defend the main principles advocated by luther but the results of the controversy were not so satisfactory for his party as he had anticipated gustavus now threw off the mass of hypocrisy and came forward boldly as the champion of the new religion He removed those bishops who were most outspoken in their opposition, banished the Dominicans who stood loyal to Rome, and tried to force the clergy to accept the change. Anxious to enrich his treasury by confiscating the wealth of the Church, he scattered broadcast Luther's pamphlet on the confiscation of ecclesiastical property, and engaged the professors of the University of Uppsala to use their efforts to defend and popularize the views it contained a commission was appointed to make an inventory of the goods of the bishops and religious institutions and to induce the monasteries to make a voluntary surrender of their property by means of threats and promises the commissioners secured compliance with the wishes of the king in some districts though in others as for example in upsala the arrival of the commission led to scenes of the greatest violence and commotion More severe measures were necessary to over the people, and Gustavus was not a man to hesitate at anything likely to promote the success of his plans. Bishop Jacobson and some of the clergy were arrested, and after having been treated with every species of indignity, were put to death, 1527. In this year, 1527, a national diet was held at Festeras, principally for the discussion of the religious difficulties that had arisen. Both parties, the supporters of the old and of the new, mustered their forces for a final conflict. Gustavus took the side of the so-called reformers and proposed the measures which he maintained were required both in the interests of religion and of the public weal. The Catholic party were slightly in the majority and refused to assent to these proposals. Gustavus, though disappointed at the result, did not despair. He announced to the Diet that in view of its refusal to agree to his terms, he could undertake no longer the government and defence of the country. A measure such as this, calculated to lead to anarchy, and possibly to a new subjugation of the country by Denmark, was regarded by both sides as a national disaster, and secured for the king the support of the waverers. The masses of the people were alarmed, lest their opposition might lead to the restoration of Danish tyranny, while the support of the nobles was secured by the publication of a decree authorizing them to resume possession of all property handed over by their ancestors to religious institutions for the last eighty years. The remainder of the possessions of the church were appropriated for the royal treasury. The king now issued a proclamation in favor of the new religion, insisted on the adoption of a liturgy in the vulgar tongue, and abolished clerical celibacy. At the National Assembly of Orbro, 1529, the Catholic religion was abolished in favor of Lutheranism, and two years later Lawrence Peterson was appointed first Lutheran Archbishop of Uppsala. Though the Lutheran teaching had been accepted, great care was taken not to shock the people by any violent change. Episcopal government of the Church was retained, most of the Catholic ritual in regard to the sacraments and the Mass was adopted in a new liturgy, and even in some cases the pictures and statues were not removed from the Churches. But the revolution that Gustavus had most at heart was fully accomplished. The authority of the Pope had been overthrown, and in his place the king had been accepted as the head of the Swedish Church. Nor did the Lutheran bishops find themselves in the enjoyment of greater liberty and respect as a result of their treason to the Church. Gustavus warned them that they must not carry themselves like lords, and if they would attempt to wield the sword, he would know how to deal with them in a summary manner. Resenting such dictation and tyranny, they began to attack Gustavus in their sermons, and to organize plots for the overthrow of his government. The conspiracy was discovered, 1540. Olaf and Lawrence Peterson, the two prominent leaders of the reforming party, were condemned to death, but were reprieved on the payment of a large fine. Lawrence was, however, removed from his position as Archbishop of Uppsala. In the Diet of Vesteras in 1544, The crown of Sweden was declared to be hereditary, and was vested in the family and heirs of Gustavus. Thus the well-considered policy of Gustavus was crowned with success. By means of the Lutheran revolt he had changed the whole constitution of the country, had made himself absolute master of Sweden, and had secured the succession to the throne for his own family. But he had not broken the power of his opponents so completely as to bring peace to his country, nor if credence be given to the proclamations in which he bewailed the increase of evil under the plea of evangelical freedom, did the reformed religion tend to the elevation of public morals. On his death in fifteen sixty, he was succeeded by his son Eric the Fourteenth, fifteen sixty to sixty nine. Hardly had the new king been proclaimed than the principle of private judgment introduced by the reformers began to produce its natural results. Calvinism, which was so opposed to Lutheranism, both in doctrine and in church government, found its way into Sweden and attracted the favorable notice of the king. Regardless for the time being of the Catholic Church, which to all appearances was dead in Sweden, the two parties, Lutherans and Calvinists, struggled for supremacy. Eric was won over to the side of the Calvinists, and measures were taken to overcome the Lutherans by force, but the king had neither the capacity nor the energy of his father. The plan miscarried, the Calvinists were defeated fifteen sixty eight, and Eric was deposed and imprisoned. His younger brother, John, succeeded to the throne under the title John III. He was a man of considerable ability, and was by no means satisfied with the new religion. His marriage with Catherine, sister of Sigismund, king of Poland, herself a devoted Catholic, who stipulated for liberty to practice her religion, helped to make him more favorable to a Catholic revival. He set himself to study the scriptures and writings of the Holy Fathers under the guidance of Catherine's chaplains, and convinced himself that he should return to the Catholic Church and endeavor to rescue his country from the condition of heresy into which it had fallen. He allowed the monks and nuns who were still in Sweden to form communities again and endeavored to win over the clergy by a series of ordinances couched in a Catholic tone, which he issued for their guidance. In 1571 he induced the Archbishop of Uppsala to publish a number of regulations known as the Agenda, which both in ritual and doctrine indicated a return to Rome, and he employed some Jesuit missionaries to explain the misrepresentations of Catholic doctrine indulged in by the Lutheran and Calvinist leaders his greatest difficulty in bringing about a reunion was the presence of lutheran bishops but fortunately for him many of them were old men whose places were soon vacant by death to whose sees he appointed those upon whom he could rely for support when he thought the time was ripe he summoned a national synod in fifteen seventy four where he delivered an address deploring the sad condition to which religious dissensions had reduced the country he pointed out that such a state of affairs had been brought about by the Reformation, and could be remedied only by a return to the Church. The address received from the clergy a much more favourable reception than he had anticipated. As the Archbishopric of Uppsala was vacant, he secured the election of an archbishop, who had his adhesion to seventeen articles of faith wholly satisfactory to Catholics, and who allowed himself to be consecrated according to the Catholic ritual he promised also to use his influence to secure the adhesion of the other bishops in fifteen seventy six the king issued a new liturgy the red book of sweden which was adopted by the diet in fifteen seventy seven and accepted by a large body of the clergy its principal was the king's brother carl duke of Suthermanland, who for political reasons had constituted himself head of the lutheran party and who refused to agree with the roman tendencies of the king on the ground that they were opposed to the last wishes of Gustavus and to the laws of Sweden. A disputation was arranged to take place at Uppsala, where the Belgian Jesuit, Laurence Nicolae, vindicated triumphantly against his Lutheran opponents the Catholic teaching on the Church and the Mass. Copies of the celebrated Catechism of the Blessed Peter Canisius were circulated throughout Sweden and made an excellent impression on the people. Encouraged by these hopeful signs, the king dispatched an embassy to Rome to arrange for the reconciliation of Sweden to the church. The royal commissioners were instructed to request that, owing to the peculiar circumstances of the country, permission should be given for communion under both kinds, for the celebration of the mass in the Swedish language, and for the abrogation of the law of celibacy, at least in regard to the clergy who were already married. Gregory the Thirteenth deeply moved by the king's offer of a reunion, sent the Jesuit Anthony Plessiven as his legate to discuss the terms. John set an example himself by abjuring publicly his heirs and by announcing his submission to the church, 1578. A commission was appointed at Rome to discuss the concessions which the king demanded, and, unfortunately, the decision was regarded in Sweden as unfavourable a warm controversy fermented and encouraged by the enemies of reunion broke out between the opponents and supporters of the new liturgy duke carl who had now become the hope of the lutheran party did everything he could to stir up strife while at the same time rome refused to accept the terms proposed by the king indignant at what he considered the unreasonable attitude of the roman authorities john began to lose his enthusiasm for his religious policy and after the death of his wife who was unwavering in her devotion to her religion there was no longer much hope that sweden was to be won from heresy 1584. the king married another who was strongly lutheran in her sympathies and who used her influence over him to secure the expulsion of the jesuits though john the took no further steps to bring about reunion he could not be induced to withdraw the liturgy the use of which he insisted upon till his death in 1592. His son, Sigismund III, should have succeeded. He was an ardent Catholic, as his mother had been, but as he had been elected King of Poland, 1586, he was absent from Sweden, when the throne became vacant by the death of his father. Duke Carl and his friends did not fail to take advantage of his absence. When the Synod met, the Senators demanded that Sigismund should accept the Augsburg confession as a condition for his election to the throne. To this Sigismund sent the only reply that a good Catholic and an honest man could send, namely, a blunt refusal. His uncle, Duke Karl, the acting regent of Sweden, took steps to seduce the Swedish people from their allegiance to their lawful king and to prepare the way for his own accession. He proclaimed himself the protector of Lutheranism and endeavored to win over the bishops to his side. At a national assembly held at Uppsala, the Uppsala Moot. 1593 after a violent address from the regent against the catholic church the bishops confessed that they had blundered in accepting the liturgy of john the third and the assembly declared itself strongly in favour of the augsburg confession when therefore sigismund returned to claim the throne he found that lutheranism was entrenched safely once more and that even the most moderate of the bishops appointed by his father must be reckoned with as opponents the clergy united with Duke Karl in stirring up the people against him. In these conditions he was forced to abandon his projects of reform and to entrust his uncle with the administration of Sweden when he himself was obliged to return to Poland. While Sigismund was engaged in Poland, the regent conducted a most skillful campaign, nominally on behalf of Protestantism, but in reality to secure the deposition of Sigismund and his own election to the throne. In the diet of fifteen ninety five sigismund was condemned for having bestowed appointments on catholics and for having tolerated the catholic religion in his kingdom of sweden and it was ordered that all who professed the doctrines of rome should abandon their errors within six months under pain of expulsion from the country the archbishop of upsala made a visitation of the churches during which he ordered that all those who absented themselves from the lutheran service should be flogged in his presence that the pictures statues and reliquaries should be destroyed and that the liturgy introduced by john the third should be abolished the great violence was used towards the supporters of king sigismund most of whom were either catholic or at least favorably inclined toward catholicism enraged by a decree that no edict of the king should have any binding force unless confirmed by the swedish diet and driven to desperation by the tyranny and oppression of the regent Some of Sigismund's followers raised the standard on behalf of their king, and Sigismund returned to Sweden, with an army of five thousand men. He found himself opposed by the forces of the regent against whom he was at first successful, but in his treatment of his uncle and his rebel followers, he showed himself far too forgiving. In return for his kindness, having strengthened themselves by a large army, they forced him to submit to the decision of a national assembly to be held at Jonkoping. 1599. At this meeting, Duke Karl accused the king of endeavouring to plunge Sweden once more into the errors from which it had been rescued by the reformers. In May of the same year, a resolution was passed declaring that the king had forfeited the allegiance of his subjects unless he yielded to their demands, and more especially unless he handed over his son and heir to be reared by the regent as a Protestant. Many of his supporters, including nine members of the Council of State, were put to death. Finally, in 1604, Sigismund was formally deposed, and the crown was bestowed on his uncle, Duke Karl, who became king under the title of Charles IX. Protestantism had triumphed at last in Sweden, but even its strongest supporters would hardly like to maintain that the issue was decided on religious grounds, or that the means adopted by Charles IX to secure the victory were worthy of the apostle of a new religion. End of section 10 End of chapter 2 End of section 11